Blog Talk Radio. It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Film Festival Radio Show. As always, we love it when you tune in. We love it when you send us emails. And I think for this show, we will probably receive even more emails because we have uh, two filmmakers on who are, they have some films that are just outstanding, starting with our first guest. Well, for many people, Walter Mercado has been a household name for so many generations. He was so optimistic. He was larger than life. And he came into everyone's households, of course, by way of television. And for some people, he was even bigger than Oprah and even more flamboyant and even bigger than uh, Liberace. But he was always about love and life and inspiration. And every day for decades, Walter Mercado just mesmerized over 120 million plus Latin viewers with his extravagance. Glamour and artistry, and just he just gave so much just inspiration, and that's what we all need at any time in life, especially now. And people around the world just loved him, they just couldn't wait for his show to come on. And I just don't blame them because I remember watching him uh, as a little girl myself. I was, I had some, uh, I grew up in Houston, but that's a whole nother story. But anyway, we want to get to our guest here. As I said, Walter was magic, he was kind of mysterious, but mostly, main thing, he was very entertaining and he was all about love. Well, right now, there is a documentary film called Mucho Mucho Amor that is airing on Netflix. It's an original documentary about the life of this beloved entertainer, Walter Mercado, and all of what he's, uh, his life and his love and all of his television shows, and just everything that was about him, what made Walter Mercado such an icon. And so that brings us to our guest. One of the producers of the film is Alex Fumero, and he is going to join us right now to give us more insight about the making of the, docu- the new documentary on Netflix, Mucho Mucho Amor. So let's bring Alex Fumero on right now. Okay, uh, okay, Alex, you are uh, one of the key producers of the uh, Netflix documentary that is currently airing, uh, Mucho Mucho Amore. Is it Amore or Amor? Help me with that. Amor. Amor. In Spanish, it's Amor. I think Amore is Italian. Oh, okay. Yeah, straighten me out there. So, uh, so anyway, the film is, uh, <laughs> it was a big hit at, at so many key film festivals, and now fans, our viewers are watching it on Netflix. And so, uh, as I said, it was a big fan among the, uh, big, huge hit among the, the uh, film festival circuit. But so far, now that it's airing on Netflix, what's been the reaction from the viewers? <laughs> 
You know, at, at least from what we've been able to see, it's been, I mean, positive, definitely. But, you know, we've seen a lot of people kind of, we've seen kind of two reactions, I think, from from Latino kids who grew up watching Walter. It's been this really powerful kind of like nostalgic uh, piece where it reminds them of their grandmas or their moms or their aunts, you know, uh, and uh, a piece of their history kind of put out there just, just like ours. That's why we made the film. And then there's just this other piece, which we were always hoping for. We had no idea, you know, we thought 2019 was as bad as it could possibly get. And then 2020 rolled around. And so, you know, uh, we made the film also to be kind of like a beacon of, of light, of hope, you know, of, of, of happiness in some pretty dark times. And, and so a lot of the response that we're getting from audiences are, man, like I, I just needed this at this time. You know, I needed something that would just make me feel good and cheer me up. And that was really the power that Walter had. You know, that was his superpower. And so you yourself obviously grew up watching uh, Walter on television like so many did. What was it about his life as you, as one of the filmmakers that you discovered that kind of surprised you? You know, I would say that he was, that he had a great sense of humor and he was in, um, he was sort of in on some of the stuff that, that was funny about him. When you watch him on TV, he, you know, he looks like Liberace. He wears these wild capes with sequins, these huge, you know, jewels, uh, um, you know, kind of like, like, like fabulous grandma hair and, and makeup. And there's just so, so many things that are, that are otherworldly about him. And then when you meet him, you realize that like a lot of that stuff he was doing on purpose because he knew it would just capture people's attention. Um, but that his main point was to get across his message. Um, and then when you hang out with him, he's just hilarious. He just has great, great comedic timing and a great sense of humor and and uh he's just a very witty smart guy uh which which i did i just didn't know to expect when I now who are some of the celebrities that are involved that are well i should say interviewed for the film within the film yeah so we have a few um so you know the the one that uh, there's well there's in, in in the Spanish language world there's folks like uh, Raúl de Molina who's known as El Gordo from El Gordo de la Flaca. There's Eugenio Derbez who's like one of the he's probably the biggest Latin American comedy star. And then you know familiar to U.S. audiences there's Lin Manuel Miranda who actually in the movie kind of acts as like a He's like our uh, emissary, right? Like he, like he, he, he's our avatar. He sort of like re- reacts. He meets Walter in the film, and and that and that scene kind of plays out the way all, it did in real life for us when we met Walter. Um, so I say in real life as though Lynn's life isn't real, but uh, it is. Uh, yes, yeah, kind of real. Know, his, his meeting Walter. It's just other, yeah. It's just a, it's a different kind of life, but but uh, but you know, it's it, his react his reaction meeting Walter is like every Latino kid's reaction meeting Walter, and I think that that's what what makes that scene so fun. And so, was this your first time meeting Walter uh, when you became the, one of the filmmakers, or what? 
Yes, it was. Uh, it was always a kind of dream of mine and of the other filmmakers, my, you know, the directors, Kareem Patch and Christina Costantini. We all grew up watching Walter. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I posted a video the other day that, uh, that I took very quietly of, of us walking up to Walter's house and being sort of whispering and asking Christina, like, where are we? And she says, we're at Walter Mercado's house. And the face that she makes is like the face a kid makes when he's going to see Santa Claus, like at the mall. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's, it was like visiting the North Pole. It was, just, uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, and then eventually, he, you know, we became very close to him, and almost like parts of the family in a way. Now, even though he was this this superstar uh, among the Latino world of fans and viewers, it, it seems like that his private life was not... It was, he kept it. He maintained some level of mystery about his private life. Am I reading that correctly or what? Yeah, totally. I mean, he, you know, he was actually a very private guy. I think, like, in some ways, strangely, he was, like, a, a natural introvert who, like, he talks about kind of inventing a famous person in him, you know, and I think he sort of taught himself to be extroverted. Uh, and, and, and part of the theme of the film is, like, how that whole persona kind of covers up for a lot of stuff that Walter would prefer stay private, you know? I mean, we we try to get into his sexuality um, uh, quite a bit in the film because that was always a point of kind of questioning in the Latin world. Um, and he never was very, he was never explicit about a, a, a particular label around it. Um, and, and he was very private about that. He was very private about that. You know, in two years of filming with him, through him or anyone who knew him, we were unable to to identify any past kind of romances that he had. You know, and it's possible he didn't have any. You know, I mean, some people don't, but um, it's unlikely. Uh, and and so yeah, I think there were parts of his life that he kept under lock and key. Um, and that's how he preferred it, you know. Um, but you know, I think I think one of the things that the documentary does that a lot of a lot of people have also commented on is that uh, you do get to meet the man behind the cape. You know, you do get to see Walter in a completely different way than you would have seen him on Univision, or even if you weren't a Spanish speaker, like flipping through the channels and seeing, you know, this this, like, larger-than-life sort of wizard-looking androgynous character on the TV. I grew up in Houston, and I had a lot of uh, Latino friends that I went to school with and played with, and so, you know, being over at their house for sleepovers and stuff, that's how I first became familiar with Walter, because uh, even though I couldn't understand totally Spanish, but I could just see this this bigger than life guy that they he was like mesm the kids would be mesmerized whenever his show came on so that's how I first became familiar with uh, uh Mr Mercado so um it, did he have that's great oh yeah yeah I mean so his his presence was very it just transcended to so many other races of people and cultures and such um but I was just wondering uh who 
because I, I was reading about him, I understand when he was much young, much younger that he was a, a very good dancer. So is that the direction that he wanted to go into his career totally into become a professional dancer? So so or or did he have who inspired him to go into the flamboyant direction that he ended up becoming a superstar from? Right. Well, I mean, I would say he he was always flamboyant. I think since he was very young, and his mother was actually very encouraging of him to be different. You know, she she often like said, you know, uh, uh, if you're gonna be different, like be different. You know, own it. And and even the dancing part of his life was extremely different. I mean, he was from like a rural town. Uh, you know, in Puerto Rico, we grew up on a farm. So to dance ballet and flamenco as a man of that time in Puerto Rico, you know, was just like unheard of, you know. Um, and Walter would say it was a shock. And, uh, and and I think he did want to be a dancer and an actor. You know, he was a stage actor and he did do quite a few novellas. But he was always fascinated with astrology, and it was sort of like the hobby that behind the scenes his friends knew him the best for, because at that time, astrology wasn't like, you know, it's incredibly popular now, but it wasn't then. And so he was like the guy who would talk about astrology. And one day he was going to promote a play that he was doing on a local TV station in San Juan, and a guest dropped out. And the producer who knew Walter said, Walter, maybe you can go on. He, he happened to be dressed like a, like a Hindu prince, because I guess that was the nature of the play. And, uh, and they said, well, Walter, you're like already dressed this fabulous way. Why don't you go on and talk about astrology? And Walter just went on and he did his thing. And, and you know, I think the dance and the acting very much perform, prepared him for this new path in his career. If you look at the way he moves his arms, his kind of dramatic turns to the camera, the makeup and the costumes, all of that stuff is definitely influenced by, you know, his, his kind of prior artistic work. And so um, to talk about the, the relationship, unfortunately, the between his longtime manager, Bill Bakula, um, lots of legal fights and money lost, money spent. What happened with that? Is that addressed in, in the film? Or we don't want to, of course, give away too much. I've seen it, but just for the listeners out no, there, it, you know. Yeah, it is. It is. I won't, I won't spoil anything. Okay. Um, it is. You know, Walter Walter had the reason that, that you, uh, that, that we saw Walter on TV, like as you said in your in your, you know, Latino friends' homes and why he was so ubiquitous uh, was because of this man, Bill Bakula, who who really took Walter from a late-night kind of oddity, you know, a guy who had a show that aired, you know, between 9 p.m. as late as, like, 11.30 p.m., you know, on the Spanish channel, uh, to, like, a primetime part of the actual, like, international news, you know, I mean, he was part of this, like, huge international news show called Primetti Paco and reached 120 million people on a daily basis, and that was really the doing of Bill Bakula. Um, and unfortunately, you know, uh, business situations get very complicated, and so um, I, I'll sort of leave it at that, but, uh, you know, 
that became probably the most trying part of Walter's life. Um, and uh, and you can find out you can find out more about that by watching the doc. Watching the doc is currently airing on Netflix. Uh, so where is uh, Bill Bakula today? You know, I don't know exactly. Um, he was running an agriculture business in Thailand uh, that I in 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 uh, partnership with the Thai government that had some sort of social good component to it. I think it was like you know growing certain types of food that would feed hungry folks. We saw recently he was selling. Um, PPE, the like protective gear for COVID, but I don't know exactly. I know he travels a lot. He travels between Thailand, um, Miami, and I think Brazil. Um, so I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine, but um, he he looks like he's staying busy. Well, what was his reaction to when you guys were making the film, or did you approach him about being interviewed, or, or what? Yeah, yeah, you know, we interviewed Bill quite extensively in the film, uh, which is, like, I think kind of a shock to a lot of people. Uh, But, you know, he was, like I said, he was an undeniably big part of Walter's success. And so um, we we really wanted him to be there. There were certain parts of Walter's career that no one can tell kind of better than Bill. Um, And... And you know, Bill uh, has his side of the story, you know, and um, and he wanted that part of the story told, which which we think is a smart move, you know. Um, uh, and so, you know, he, he he gets his shot to do that in the film. Well, if like Dr. Phil says, you know, I've been quarantined for too long when I start quoting Dr. Phil, but he says, no matter how flat, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to get out and get some air. But this is a very true statement. He, is, he says, no matter how flat a pancake is, it still has two sides. So that could be applied with this situation <laughs> for sure. I, that's that's how we feel as filmmakers. You know, it's, it's definitely the pancake has two sides. It has two sides. Well, one of the... Um, aspects of the film that I was very happy to see is that Mr. Mercado had, before he passed away uh, late last year, uh, did he get to see the, were you guys totally finished with the film? Did he get to see it in its entirety, in its final um, editing and such? Unfortunately, he didn't, you know, and that that was one of our goals, you know. We, we kind of set three goals for ourselves when we started off. It was, you know, Finish the, make sure we finish the film before Walter passes away. He was very healthy when we met him, so it's not that we thought he was, he wasn't dying, but he was old. You know, he was 86 years old when we started shooting with him, and so we knew things could turn very quickly. That was one goal. Sundance, premiering at Sundance was a goal, and that, that we achieved, and getting on Netflix was actually a goal, and that we achieved. So, you know, it still, I think, it really pains us that we weren't able to show him the full movie. We did get to show him 20 minutes of the film. Um, he actually, and he loved it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in one of these strange Walter cosmic coincidences, we, we finished, we submitted a, a, a full cut of the film to Sundance on November 1st, and Walter passed away on November 2nd. 
Oh, and, and Dia de los Muertos, actually. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Well, what has his family, the mm-hmm. Mercado family, what what has been their reaction to the film? You know, I think they're very they they're very happy with the film itself. Mm-hmm. I think you know they came to the premiere at Sundance, which I think they 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 enjoyed, but you know they're still in mourning, to be honest. The family and kind of the extended family with Willie, his, you know, longtime assistant, and Wilma, his longtime secretary, you know, they, and his, all his nieces, they, they're still mourning, you know, the loss of their uncle and the, probably the most important figure in their lives. So it was, it was very bittersweet, you know, that like watching the film feels like a great tribute to their uncle, feels like, they, you know, kind of captured his true essence, but then, you know, you're reminded of the fact that he's gone. So yeah. I think it's been I think it's been tough for them, but I think they're ultimately glad it exists. Well one final question here. Um Walter did in his image and his lifestyle, he did a lot to influence today's millennial Latinx community. Um speak on that on that whole topic. Yeah, you know, I mean, this this was one of the main motivations for making the movie for us. You know, growing up, I remember asking my grandma when I was like, you know, five or six years old, you know, uh, Mima, is that is that a man or a woman? You know, and she would say, she said, she would say to me, I don't know, but I think it's a man because his name he calls himself Walter, and. Uh, and 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 growing up, I you know you you come to realize how unlikely it is for someone who is you know to use terms we use now gender non-binary right like um, uh, kind of sexually fluid perhaps right mm-hmm. like Walter also never identified as straight right so uh, to 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 be such a a huge icon in a pretty machista kind of homophobic world is really unlikely and when you see a lot of young even the term latinx right like when you see a lot of young latin kids queer kids gender non-binary kids you know um finally starting to feel like they can really express themselves in a totally open way like walter kind of served as a pioneer in that way you know even though he never he never officially came out, right? Like, you know, he he always, he never shied away from who he was. And I think that that has served as a real inspiration, not only for LGBTQ folks, but also for all of us, you know, just to like, like as Walter, you know, would say, or Willie would say, like, you know, Walter always took an I don't care pill. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, that, and that I think is really important for all of us. It's just like loving one another, no matter what our differences are. And, you know, and just doing you, you know, just do you. Don't yeah. worry so much about what other people think. I think that's been a real legacy of his um, within the Latin community. And we, we're hoping, you know, to share that with other communities more so now. Well, he was definitely so far ahead of his time in so many ways as far as uh, an entertainer. And uh, I'm sure he is just so proud of the work you guys have done and the reception that the fans. Um, Thank you. A really good job. Well, let me ask you this really last question here. His 
beautiful, elaborate costumes and capes and shoes and such. Um, is there going to be or is there already like a, a museum where these are showcased? Because I'm asking because I, I attended a museum for Tina Turner's that's in small town Tennessee, and it has a lot of her stage costumes. It's very well done. So are there plans to do this for Walter, or has it already been being done? Well, so, so, so there's a few things happening. The Smithsonian Museum actually has expressed interest in obtaining one of Walter's tapes to put in their, like, Latino extension that they're putting together, okay. um, which would, would be very cool. Yeah. Um, and then um, there are some other museums that have reached out with a similar purpose. The family initially wanted to turn his house into a museum, but it's just, it's in a residential area. It's like not going to work out. So I could imagine maybe at some point something like that happening in San Juan. Um, but right now I think it might be like too much for the family themselves to contemplate. And uh, I will tell you, they are planning on having an estate sale because there are so many capes and so many jewels and so many, you know, little trinkets and icons that Walter has. That I, I think even for a museum it would be too much, right? So, uh, so if you want if you want a cape in your house, you might be able to make that happen. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I do think that there will be there will be uh, institutions that sort of like that, that now like kind of put Walter in their collections, um, and I think that's probably what we'll see happen. An estate sale? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! What I would not give yeah. just to get out. Something. Do you want a giant quartz bracelet? Yes. I think it might be for sale. <laughs> How can we find out, you know, when this estate sale is going to happen? Is there a website or what? Well, we'll, we'll publicize it. Follow at Mucho Amor Movie, and when the family does it, we'll make sure to promote it. We're on Instagram at, at Mucho Amor Movie, or you can follow our Facebook page, Mucho, Mucho Amor Movie, to search for us. Uh, we'll make sure to, to blast it out there. Please. And, and just put aside, just for me, a cape and a bracelet. I got you covered. Okay. <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let them know. I'll let them Please. know. Please. Well, Alex, uh, I look forward to, I know I keep saying this is my last question, but I got. I always ask my guests, the final question is, what is their next film? What is their next project? So we got to ask you, what, what are you working on now? Sure. I mean, I'm working. I'm working on a bunch of stuff. Um, some of most of which I can't talk about just yet. I'm really excited about this. I have a short film that I'm working on uh, um, called Undocu Diva, and it's about um, it's about this amazing undocumented kid, really. I mean, he's an adult now, but like you know, an activist that grew up in the states, came from El Salvador. Um, and competes in the Miss Gay America pageant, which is like kind of the, the biggest national drag competition in the United States. Um, so he's this undocumented drag queen activist that, that I just found uh, so fascinating. Um, and so we're, we're, in the, we're working on the edit on that now, um, uh, myself and the two directors, Paul Ramos, uh, who's Jorge Ramos' daughter, and Lisa Conlon, who's a fantastic shooter for Vice, um, so look out for that. That that you know that should come out later this year, hopefully. Oh yeah, but please come back and talk about that one for sure. I was on that. Oh man, thanks, thanks so much. 
Oh, well, thank, thank you so much for giving us some insight, the behind-the-scenes uh, info of the making of Mucho Mucho Amor, and that a state sale is coming soon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you posted. Okay, well, again, please let us know when your, your next film is ready, and we'll just bring you back on to talk about that one as well. So thank you again for uh, chatting with us. I would love that. Thank you. Great, okay. Great talking to you. Same here, then. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And how exciting is that to know that there is strong possibility that there's going to be a Walter Mercado estate sale. And I really do mean that if I could get just one item, just one, a bracelet or just whatever I can, socks, whatever I can get, I would love it. So I will definitely keep my word. Once I get the information as to when the the estate sale will take place, I will post it and let you guys know about it so maybe you can get in on uh, purchasing some of the items from, oh, can you imagine what the estate sale, how fabulous that's going to be. Well, anyway, thank you uh, to our guest, Alex, for getting, giving us that information and for letting us know about the estate sale. I'm all about that shopping. But, okay, that brings us to our next guest. Another filmmaker, Stockton On My Mind, is an upcoming new documentary film that will be premiering on HBO on July 28th. Now, this film follows uh, Millennial Mayor of Stockton, California, Mayor Michael Tubbs. And it's all about his personal life as far as when he was growing up, his political journey, and how he escaped I won't say escaped, it's just say how he overcame growing up in, oh, just extreme poverty and violence in Stockton, California. But that did not stop him from where he is now. He is currently the mayor of Stockton, California. And at age 26, he was elected mayor on the same day that President Trump became the president in 2016, and Michael Tubbs became the youngest mayor of a major American city, and he had a job on his hands because Stockton was in, oh, it was a mess, so we won't give away too much. We'll ask our filmmaker uh, all about that, but the beginning of uh, Mayor Tubbs' life was not pretty. It was tough. He grew up he uh, on the uh, south side of Stockton which is not the best side of town. His mom was a teenage teen mom, and his dad has been in prison his entire life. So with that type of background, Michael Tubbs' future was not good, not even kind of good. But he escaped an impoverished early life, and he now is, again, the mayor of Stockton, California, and he and his team and others who've worked with him, they are really doing some amazing things in Stockton, California. So let's bring on the director of Stockton on My Mind. Uh, His name is Mark Levin, and he's going to share with us more details about the making of the film. And again, it will be premiering on HBO on July 28th. So let's bring on Mark Levin to share more details about the film right now. Michael Tubbs is such an inspiring story for 
not only African Americans, but just really anyone and everyone. So is that what attracted you to the story, or had you kind of been following his story a while, or what? Uh, well, you know, it started really because Stockton was the ground zero for the subprime mortgage meltdown back in 2008. And I'd done a series of films for HBO on how these powerful economic and global forces are impacting everyday people's lives. So I went out there really uh, kind of on that mission originally. Uh, and then somehow I, I started uh, meeting people there, and on one of my trips, uh, I met this young 22-year-old city councilman. And I remember walking down the street with Michael and him telling me, you know, I asked how he got into politics, and he told me that, you know, Oprah Winfrey had actually supported this candidacy and had given a contribution, and that she had only contributed to two other politicians. One was Cory Booker, and one was Barack Obama. And I was like, well, that's a pretty good company uh, that you're in, Michael. And I uh, made a mental note that uh, I better follow this young man. I had actually just done a series with Cory Booker in Newark, Brick City. I was just finishing a series in Chicago, Obama's home, Chicagoland. So, yes, I, I became intrigued and kind of stayed in touch. And then in 2016, on election day, uh, the same day Donald Trump was elected president, uh, Michael Tubbs was elected the youngest mayor of a major American city. He was 26 years old. And I remember thinking, you know, in the midst of uh, that very depressing uh, evening, um, you know, well, it's not all hopeless. And uh, I reached out and eventually reconnected. Uh, and then when I learned that, you know, he was also interested in this whole universal basic income concept uh, and that he had first come upon it reading uh, uh, Mark Luther King's writings when he was at Stanford. Uh, and that was an idea that we had run into a number of times on these documentaries we did. Um, I, you know, thought this, this could really be an interesting story here. So that's kind of how it started. And an interesting story that it really is. So, you know, his his dossier, so to speak, Michael's it is is horrible. The beginning, but it's you know, like that old saying goes, it's not you know, we know that old saying. But here he is. Mom was a teenager. Father in prison. Uh, so his is his dad in prison for life, or what is it? Yeah, his dad unfortunately is in prison for life. But I mean, he's been up for parole. Unfortunately, his par parole was rejected. Uh, I think two years ago. I guess uh, in three or four years he comes up again, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, he will be released. I hope. Uh, I certainly feel that he has made a significant change in his own life. Uh, you know, even inside. Um, so yeah, but you're right. Michael grew up, as he says in the film at the beginning. You know, he was set up. His mom was 16. You know, a uh, single mom, and uh, his dad was a gang leader and was in prison most of his life. And he was set up. The setup is that he would follow. He'd either end up in prison with his dad, or he'd end up dead, like sadly his cousin who was murdered. Uh, and that became his mission was he found a way to break that cycle, that generational cycle of poverty, that, that school to prison pipeline, and he upset the setup. And that became a mantra, was how to 
of the larger mission that we are all on now uh, in this pandemic and this economic collapse and this new social uh, justice movement is the call really is to upset the setup. There's no going back. There's no going back to the way it used to be. We, we, we need to go forward. And I think that what you see in Stockton on my mind and what you see happening in, in many places is the seeds are being planted uh, for a new uh, social contract, really, uh, just as out of the Depression, you know, this country emerged with a new social contract uh, and a safety and, and, and a safety net and social security and unemployment and all of these things uh, that, you know, we, we kind of took for granted and uh, now is the reckoning. And so I think it's instructive and, and inspiring in a way for people to see that, you know, we're so lost in the lunacy coming out of Washington that we don't realize what is happening in many communities around this country. Well, it just really sounds like Stockton is definitely a success story uh, that many cities maybe need to model uh, some of the things that they are doing. Um, but going back to Michael here, what, how close, you know, and again, we don't want to reveal too much. We want people to see the documentary HBO, July 28th. But how close, or did he ever become close to going into the direction of the gangs and the violence and such? No, I don't think Michael, I mean, Michael, you know, has an incredible intellectual curiosity, um, you know, so, uh, I mean, I remember his grandmother telling me that, you know, even as, as a little kid, you know, he'd go to the library and he just loved, you know, losing himself in books. And uh, I, I, I think he, you know, was always motivated. He, he, he was, you know, he was raised, as he says in the film, you know, his mother, but also his mother's sister, his aunt, and his grandmother. So these three powerful women, you know, raised him and, and disciplined him and kept him in line. Uh, so, you know, I mean, yeah, he did, you know, kind of uh, wear his pants hanging low. And, you know, obviously he was into the, the, the hip-hop culture and rap culture and was somewhat of a disciplined problem in high school, you know, because he challenged his teachers. He didn't just accept uh, what he was told or at times he felt he was actually, you know, that, that some of his teachers exhibited racist tendencies and he was going to challenge them. He wasn't going to take it. Uh, so he did get in some trouble in that way. But no, I don't think, uh, you know, he came, uh, that he, he ever slipped into the real street life. And so what was the catalyst that sparked him as a high school or maybe was middle school to say that, yeah, you, Michael Tubbs, you can go to college? Because it sounds like he wasn't surrounded with a bunch of, you know, college grads and such. So what was it in particular? Who was it? He had, you know, a number of mentors. And, you know, and, and mentoring is, is another element. You know, there's so many ways that people can make a difference. You don't have to just be mayor. And then that's what we try to show in this film. And to his credit, he encouraged it, you know, that the spotlight and the camera show other people, not just always point at him. And mentoring is a huge part of that, which you do see in this film with Lavelle Hawkins, who, you know, is an ex-NFL star uh, and, you know, is mentoring this young uh, kid, Isaiah, who in many ways is kind of mirroring what happened to Michael's father, you know, a generation earlier. So Michael had mentors. 
And it was one of his mentors who, you know, convinced him to apply to Stanford because he said, Stanford, you know, I can't afford Stanford. There's no way I can get into a school like Stanford. And he had a, a teacher mentor who pushed and pushed him and helped him, you know, focus and helped him come up with, uh, you know, ways of, of kind of thinking about how to apply. And also he wrote this essay. And we have the uh, opening lines of that essay in a scene, um, you know, when we go to visit his father in prison. And uh, those first lines have stayed with me. You know, the first time I saw my father, he was in change and dressed in all orange, you know. So that that essay he wrote, which I think had a big impact in, you know, uh, his acceptance to Stanford, and uh, it, it actually ended up on the front page, I think, of the record, the local newspaper. So he had help, there's no doubt. He, he's the first to admit it. He would have never applied to Stanford, which obviously changed his life being there, uh, hadn't he been pushed and encouraged and helped along the way. And so his interest in political government, did that really start in college or a little after college? Or no, what? it was in high school. He was like a, you know, class president and he was organizing. He was organizing from the start. I mean, I think his, his grandmother, you know, kind of was grooming him to be more of a preacher oh. uh, and, and, and possibly through religion, you know, in the church organized. Uh, but... You know, uh, he was already involved in youth groups. Uh, some of the characters in the film spotted him when he was a teenager and were encouraging uh, leadership roles. But when he was at Stanford, he did get lost in studying the civil rights movement. And, uh, you know, just with the passing of John Lewis, uh, uh, John Lewis and many other characters inspired him uh, and really moved him. And I think he thought originally he was going to be an activist and an organizer. Uh, and somewhere his things evolved. You know, his cousin was murdered, and that was, you know, after the, the Stanford, he was an intern at the White House in the Obama years. But it was the murder of his cousin that brought him back to Stockton. And one of his friends really just challenged him, like, what are you going to do, man? You know, you know, you're off in Washington, D.C., but Stockton needs you. Your hometown needs you. And I think that was the real turning point in his life where he decided, uh, even against his mother's <laughs> wishes, because his mother, you know, he'd gone to Stanford, he was at the White House, and she saw, you know, great things ahead, and uh, also, you know, financial stability. And uh, when he told her that, you know, I'm going to run for city council of Stockton, I think that shocked her a bit. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing, oh God, just to go from where he came from. I mean, forget about other side of the tracks. I mean, it just seems like it wasn't any tracks of where, how he grew up. And now he's mayor. So what do you, what do you think, or, or I won't say what do you think, and talking to and putting the film together and interviewing various people. Here is this young African-American man, no real political experience other than, you know, being a city council. What was it about him? What were people saying? What was it about him to get all races to vote for him? Well, I think he distinguished 
distinguished himself on the council as being someone that reached out. I mean, uh, you know, Stockton has been called by U.S. News & World Report the most diverse city in the United States. So even though, you know, he's the first African-American mayor, um, it's a community that's got a great mix of uh, all ethnicities, obviously large uh, Mexican-American population, a, a, a very large Filipino population. Uh, so I think, you know, his ability, he's, he's, um, he's open, he's down to earth, he's not pretentious. Uh, he's uh, somebody that reaches out, um, and he's got a wide network of uh, friends and supporters, uh, you know, from, from his youth. Uh, and then finally, I, I don't think you can discount the fact that this is a town that crashed. I mean, and that's why I think this film is so instructive. I mean, here's a town that not only was at the epicenter for, you know, this subprime mortgage meltdown that led to the Great Recession, the town went bankrupt. At that point, it was the largest American city ever to go bankrupt. So my point is that I think the community as a whole felt, my God, the old way doesn't work. Look where it ended up for us. Uh, we got to try something new, even if it is a 26-year-old African-American, you know, young man from the south side of Stockton. We're ready because we have seen the old way doesn't work. Um, and that, I think, is very instructive to where we are today also in terms of us going through this, you know, pandemic and this economic collapse and the social justice uprising is that uh, we're, we're ready for something new, uh, a new paradigm, a new social contract, a new way of organizing ourselves that helps more people. Uh, and even this idea, it's being debated right now. I mean, when I first went out to Stockton, the idea of universal basic income or guaranteed income, uh, giving money to people uh, directly, uh, you know, that was seen as far out. Even Michael, as he says in the film, you know, was like, no, nah, this can't be. Uh, but uh, he first read about it in Martin Luther King's writings, uh, who was a proponent saying this is kind of the next step in, in, in creating a social safety net for the wealthiest country in the world. And now, right today, the U.S. Congress is debating this in terms of whether they're going to continue with some of these direct cash payments to keep people afloat, uh, you know, during this crisis that we're in. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I, I have to say, I don't think any of us could have anticipated the timing of this film, you know, in the midst of what's happening and just kind of how resonant it would be when people are looking for change, when, when they're looking to upset the setup and they're looking for something new, uh, that here is a story that, that is very instructive and inspiring, I think. Uh, now, I don't want, you know, Stockton has got problems like every city. It's got homelessness, it's got violence, it's got a lot of problems. But it has come a long way from when it was basically written off. And, it, you know, it wasn't on anybody's mind, it, you know, now. And uh, Common, who comes to the city at the end of the film, uh, you know, because he, he gives a free concert and he's got his own a criminal justice reform movement, so he was very interested in what was happening in Stockton. And he's the one who says, he says, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Stockton was not on my mind. 
but you know, there were people in my organization that kept pushing me and said, you got to go to Stockton, man. You got to see what's happening there. So there are ideas and things happening on the local level that we miss because of, you know, the, the just freak show that we see in Washington, D.C. We miss that simultaneously in many places in this country, and, and in fact, this idea for a guaranteed income, uh, Michael organized and announced two weeks ago that there's this new coalition, Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, the mayor of Newark, the mayor of Los Angeles, mayor of San Francisco, Oakland, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, so there are things happening. And uh, I, I just felt, you know, that there was value in telling a counter narrative to just the depressing news we hear every night uh, on, you know, our TV sets. And it is uh, day and night. I find myself having to just turn the volume down on so much of it. But this, this one, this, this film, turn the volume up loud, surround sounded. It is just that good of a story uh last question here does uh, the mayor did he indicate whether or not he wants to seek a bigger office maybe the governor of california or maybe one day presidency or, or what well um he's running for re-election so he's going to go for another term uh as mayor so that would be another four years if he is re-elected and uh if that would, you know, he'd be 33 or 34 years old after being mayor of Stockton uh, for eight years if, if he is reelected. At that point, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's all open. Uh, I think he's interested in, in, you know, moving up uh, in the political world, no doubt. Uh, at the same time, I, I think he has other interests, uh, you know, creative interests. Uh, as I said, he was always, you know, the activism. And then there's the philanthropic world, which, which he's, you know, that's part of how all this has happened is that he's been able to raise money uh, that's not taxpayer money to finance this basic income uh, pilot program, to finance this Stockton Scholars uh, program. This, this is not taxpayer money. Uh, this is money that has been raised, you know, in the private sector. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that's, and, and I see that, uh, you know, the, the, the head of Twitter is, is underwriting a startup of this uh, mayors for guaranteed uh, income. So I think that's an area of interest. Uh, you know, he, he's got a lot of interest. He's a father now. Uh, but there's no doubt, no doubt that, you know, he's got his eyes uh, looking ahead and uh, we'll just have to see. Well, I, it sounds like, and from what I've seen from your film and read about him, it really does sound like he has a more than bright uh, political future ahead of him. So it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't pursue becoming governor or senator or president and when, if he keeps on the record of the uh, track that he is on now. And so finally, I couldn't agree with you even more about the timing of the release of your film. It's just, the timing is just perfect. But you just seem like you have a track record of releasing films that uh, the timing is always good. So what's coming up next for you in, in your just awesome film career? Well, first of all, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and I've got to admit that... Uh, some of this is just luck, uh, you know, because last fall, 
you know, when we were finishing shooting, uh, I remember talking to Nancy Abraham at, at HBO, and, and I give them a lot of credit because this is a little different, you know, than, than most films that, you know, are out there in terms of looking at politics and what's going on. And I just remember her concern, though, that, you know, okay, uh, in the spring is going to be the Democratic presidential primaries, you know, that's going to suck all the oxygen out, and then there's going to be the Olympics in Tokyo, and then there's going to be the conventions, and then there's going to be the presidential election. So, you know, where can we fit this in? Who's going to be interested in Stockton? Uh, and as we know, the world has been turned upside down. And, you know, to HBO's credit and AT&T, they decided a few weeks ago that uh, the week after this premiere is on the 28th, uh, they're going to offer it for free to anybody in the public. Uh, it, it'll be on HBO.com for free for a month. Um, so some of that is just luck. But uh, in terms of what I'm doing, um, you know, I'm starting, uh, you know, a, a second season of I Promised. I Promise is the documentary series I did for Quibi that was released back in April on the uh, public school that LeBron James and his foundation have supported for at-risk kids in Akron. That is an incredible story, and uh, we're starting round two on that. Um, I'm working with Sonia Sohn on a film called The Slow Shuffle about police corruption uh, and, uh, and, and a death of a police officer uh, in Baltimore. It's a follow-up to her film, Baltimore Rising, that we did together. And, of course, Sonia and I go back to Slam, uh, which she was one of the stars of Slam and then went on to The Wire that was on HBO. And then uh, I'm also involved uh, in um, a film uh, of, it'll be on Showtime, for, uh, it's on Kevin Garnett, uh, the, bas- the legendary basketball player uh, and future Hall of Famer. Uh, who I've become friends with and uh, is, a, is a fascinating, fascinating character uh, and was the first uh, uh, high school player to go right to the pros of his generation, the first since the 70s. In 95, he went and then Kobe followed and LeBron followed. Um, so there's, there's a lot percolating even in this uh, pandemic era. Well, I'll tell you, Mark, it just sounds like all of these upcoming films are, once again, they're top red hot button topics and you and your films are just at the forefront of all of this and man i need to come shake your hand i guess we can still shake hands with gloves on to get some of that good luck that you have here with your films that's so awesome where where are you now i am in las vegas Oh, you're in Los Angeles. Yeah, geez, yeah. It's, it's just frightening that, you know, I mean, a few weeks ago we were able to actually uh, resume work on the uh, KT documentary, uh, but uh, my God, and now, uh, you know, it looks like everything's closing down out there. Yeah, once again. So all we can do is just, I call it mask up and glove down. Uh, <laughs> which is what I do, because uh, I, I don't take any chance. I even have rubber gloves on. I'm not kidding about this stuff. <laughs> nah. That's great. Well, look, I hope the uh, the sound uh, works on this one or between the two, but I appreciate your interest uh, and uh, certainly appreciate, you know, that you, you, you followed this, and uh, I hope we can get a good audience to see it. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue uh, on our next production. Please do. You have a long list of films that I definitely would love to discuss with you once they're released. So, yes, by all means, please give us a call. We'd love that. 
Thank you. You got it. And remember, upset the setup. Upset the setup, including the virus. That includes that, too. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you, Mark Levin. Uh, lots of very fascinating details. What an inspiring film, though, to come from that kind of extreme background, go to Stanford University, graduate, and then you're now mayor. Well, we became a city councilman, then mayor. But it's just an inspiring film for anyone, no matter what profession you're in, that how with hard work, determination, education, the right support system, you can have overcome a lot. I mean, a lot. And this young man, Mayor Tubbs, is a perfect example of that. So, again, the film will be premiering on HBO July 28th. Make sure you tune in. I've already seen it, of course. And it's, you know, amidst of what we're all dealing with here right now, we need films like this one and we need films like Mucho Mucho Amor to uh, just keep us inspired from what all of the craziness is going on in our society. So, anyway, that's going to do it for this edition of Film Festival Radio Show. I want to thank you guys for listening to us as always. You can drop us a line, info at filmfestivalradio.com, and we'll be more than happy to write you back and say hello. So stay tuned for our next show. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.